Chapter Thirty of Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty, Theseus, Part One. Theseus was among the heroes who joined Jason in the famous Argonautic expedition, and he also accompanied Meleager on the Caledonian hunt. Thus it seems that he was well known throughout Greece for a brave and daring youth who was ready to follow his friends into any adventure, no matter how dangerous. When Theseus was a mere child, his father, Aegeus, king of Athens, went on a journey to some distant country, taking with him his wife Aethra and his little son. He returned alone to Athens, leaving Theseus and his mother in the stranger's land, but before he departed he hid his sword and sandals under a large rock, and bade Aethra to leave them there until she deemed her son strong enough to raise the stone. If Theseus proved equal to the test, he was to take the sword and sandals and go straightway to his father's court at Athens, where he would be acknowledged as the king's son and heir. Aethra carefully obeyed these instructions, and when the time came that she considered Theseus strong enough to meet his father's test, she led him to the rock and bade him raise it. With a mighty effort the youth lifted the huge stone, and to his surprise he found beneath it a pair of sandals and a fine sword, both so perfectly preserved that they might have been placed there only the day before. Then Aethra explained the presence of these gifts, and told her son how the king, his father, had placed them there beneath the rock so that he might know whether Theseus was to be a future hero or a weakling. While his mother was speaking, the youth eagerly girded on the bright sword and put the sandals on his feet, and he needed no urging when Aethra bade him set out at once for his father's kingdom. She warned him of the perils, and that beset the road to Athens, for giants and robbers would bar his way, and many other dangers lay in wait for the traveller. But Theseus was young and fearless, and he would have faced greater dangers than these to reach King Aegeus and the wonderful city of Athens. He had gone but a few miles on his journey, when he was accosted by the giant Periphetes, son of Vulcan, who stood in the road with his huge club in his hand, and refused to let Theseus pass. When the young hero pushed boldly forward, Periphetes raised his club to strike the youth to the ground, as he had done many another wayfarer, but as he lifted his arm for the blow, Theseus plunged his sword quickly into the giant's side, and Periphetes fell dead upon the very roadway where he had been for so long a terror to all travellers. Elated with this victory, Theseus took the stout club of his fallen enemy and continued his journey to the Isthmus of Corinth, where he found that the road soon grew very narrow and led along the edge of a rocky precipice. Here he encountered a famous robber named Skyron, who compelled all those who passed his way to wash his feet. When the terrified traveller, unable to refuse, was thus occupied, the robber would suddenly raise his foot and kick the man over the side of the cliff into the sea below, where a hungry tortoise lay waiting with ever-open jaws. When Theseus was told the condition on which he would be allowed to pass, he drew his sword and set upon his enemy so fiercely that Skyron quickly withdrew his demand and offered to let the hero go on his way undisturbed. Then Theseus, as he held his sword-point at the robber's throat, commanded Skyron to perform the same menial task that he had set so many others, and when the robber, not daring to refuse, was kneeling before him, Theseus hurled him over the precipice, and gave one more meal to the hungry tortoise, who never again was able to feast on the bodies of luckless travellers. The next adventure that befell the hero was with a cruel giant named Sinis, or the Pinebender, 
because he delighted in bending over some tall pine-tree until its top reached the ground, and having done this he would call to some unsuspicious passer-by to help him hold it down. The stranger usually complied with this request, and then the giant would take his great hand from the tree, which would at once spring back to its upright position, hurling the unfortunate helper into the air, and often dashing him to pieces against the rock. When Theseus encountered the giant and was asked for his help, he remembered that his mother had told him long ago of this brutal giant's jest, and he determined that travellers should no more be killed or even terrorised by this curse of the highway. So when Sinis bent down a particularly large and strong pine-tree, and begged Theseus to help him hold it, the hero deftly fastened the giant himself to the tree, which sprang upwards as soon as it was released, and dashed the huge body against the mountain-side, crushing it to pieces. After disposing of the giant, Theseus continued his journey, and next encountered Procrustes, called the Stretcher, a fearful giant who, under the pretense of hospitality, lured travellers into his house. Though an offer of food and entertainment was so unusual that it might have aroused suspicion, most of those who passed Procrustes's house accepted his invitation and entered. In the house was an iron bedstead, on which the giant forced all his guests to lie. If they were too short, he stretched their limbs to suit the size of the bed, and if they were too long, he cut off their legs to make them fit its dimensions. Theseus entered Procrustes' home, and partook freely of the food set before him. Then he suddenly fell upon the giant, who was unprepared for such an attack, bound him to his own bedstead, and by making his huge body fit into it, inflicted on Procrustes the same cruel death that he had delighted to visit on others. When Theseus finally reached Athens, he went straight away to the palace, and on his way he learned that his father had married the sorceress Medea. When he arrived at the royal apartments, and came before Aegeus, his cloak so completely hid his sword, that the king could not possibly recognise it as the one he had left for his son. Nevertheless he welcomed the stranger, who seemed a brave and handsome youth, and bade him take a place at the banquet-table. But though the king did not know whom he was entertaining, Medea, the sorceress, was perfectly well aware of the stranger's identity, and mixed a deadly poison in the wine-cup that was intended for the guest. Handing this to Aegis, she bade him honour the youth with a cup of their choicest wine, and the king, suspecting nothing, was about to offer the poisoned drink to Theseus, when he suddenly saw the sword beneath the stranger's cloak. Looking down at the youth's sandals, he recognised them as the ones that he had buried under a rock long ago and he knew then that the sword was also his own. With a cry of joy he started forward to embrace his son, and as he did so the cup of wine that he held in his hands was overturned and its contents poured on the table. Some of the drops of poisoned wine fell on a dog that was lying at the king's feet, and immediately it gave one convulsive shudder and died. Realising that the deadly draught had been meant for him, and knowing that only the jealous Medea could have dared to commit such a crime, Theseus sprang toward her with drawn sword, intending to put an end to her wickedness. But the sorceress fled from the banquet-hall, mounted her dragon-car, and escaped to a distant country, which afterwards was called by her name Medea. King Aegis was delighted to find that his son had grown to be such a brave and handsome youth, and he listened with pride while Theseus related all the adventures that had befallen him on the way to Athens. Then the king made a great feast in honour of his son, and publicly proclaimed him his heir. The time passed very happily to Theseus, 
until the day when he saw a sad procession of weeping people wending its way through the streets, and observed in the midst of them seven youths and seven maidens, dressed in funeral garments. He inquired where this solemn cortege was going, and was told that the casting of lots had just been concluded, and the victims had been chosen for the Minotaur. Then the young prince learned for the first time that since Minos, king of Crete, had conquered the Athenians in a recent war, he had exacted of them a terrible tribute. Each year seven youths and seven maidens were offered to the Minotaur, an insatiable monster that dwelt in an intricate labyrinth built for its special use by King Minos, and designed by the celebrated architect Daedalus. The labyrinth was so intricate that no one who entered it could ever hope to find his way out, and the victims which Athens supplied each year were probably killed by terror and suspense as they threaded their way through the labyrinth's tortuous windings long before the fearful minotaur came upon them. The architect who designed this wonderful cave should have earned the lasting gratitude of Minos, but Daedalus unfortunately lost the king's favour, and for some slight offence was shut up in a tower with his son Icarus. The boy gave himself up for lost, but the father began at once to contrive some means of escape, and ingeniously fashioned two pairs of wings, which were to gain freedom for himself and his son. When the last feather was adjusted, Daedalus fastened one pair of wings securely on Icarus, and cautioned him not to fly too high lest the heat of the sun should melt the wax with which the feathers were held together. The youth, impatient to be free, paid slight attention to these warnings, and as soon as his wings were fastened he sprang boldly from the tower window and flew straight towards the clouds. Higher and higher he rose, exulting in this glorious motion, and soon the heat of the sun's rays began to soften the wax on his wings. When it was too late, Icarus realised his danger and came nearer to the earth, but the wax was melting fast, and in a moment the feathers separated and the adventurous boy was plunged headlong into the sea. His body was never recovered, but that part of the sea was afterwards called the Icarian Sea. Daedalus enjoyed a happier fate than that of his son, for he reached Sicily in safety, and built a temple there to Apollo. In the temple he hung up his wings as an offering to the god. End of chapter 30